Let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you for the gift of glorious music, and especially for biblical, truthful words set to that music. Thank you for our worship time today, uh, all of it, God starting early in the morning, and it's all leading up to this, uh, the proclamation of, of your word. So I ask you to bless it and bless everyone who hears it this morning. Pray that you would open hearts, open up ears, uh, open up our spirits, God, that we might receive the goodness of your word, the truth of it, and, and know that you are God of the word. We praise you and ask you these things in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, it struck me in this past week, uh, just preparing for Resurrection Day and Good Friday and thinking about our Lord and just his passion and uh, just the steps leading up to the cross and then to today, the glorious resurrection, uh, that sometimes it seems we are easily impressed uh, with the feats of people even fascinated sometimes by the achievements of human beings here on this earth. And, uh, for example, Elon Musk has made the news uh, in recent days. And, you know, I was kind of looking up things that he's done, and I don't, actually don't know too much about him. But um, Tesla cars, I knew that. That's pretty impressive, right? We like Tesla? Okay, we got one. Um, but uh, Internet satellites, that's, that's pretty impressive. Like, who, who makes that up? Um, reusable space rockets. Yeah, that is, I, I didn't know he did that, but uh, that is, that is quite, quite interesting. Um, not to mention the, the CEO of three companies all at the same time, right? And uh, it seems like some people think that, you know, if he's actually allowed to buy Twitter, he's going to save Western civilization. But um, I wonder, I wonder, do we find the person of Jesus Christ, okay, who's the actual Savior of the world? Do we find him who is the most brilliant, the most creative, the most genius, the most beautiful, the most perfect, holy, kind, loving, glorious being who's ever lived? Do we find him captivating? Are we enthralled by the person of Jesus Christ, the one who upholds all things in the universe by the word of his power? I ask, do you know him? Do you know him? And is it not just awesome that, that we can even know him? Dear fellow believers, brothers and sisters in Christ, don't we just pinch ourselves sometimes knowing that we actually know the creator of the universe and that we know him personally? He is the greatest being of all time, the one who gave us life and conquered death, the grave, sin, Satan, and hell. He's our risen Savior and Lord. And he's the Lord of glory. He's the King of glory. He came down from heaven some 2,000 years ago as the Savior of the world. He died as the substitute for sinners, bearing the wrath of God in his own body against our sins, taking them all upon himself and receiving the punishment we deserved so that all who look to him in repentant faith can have the gift of eternal life forever. This is promised to all who believe in Jesus alone. Why should God 
let you into heaven, dear brother, dear sister in Christ, only because you in repentant faith have trusted Jesus as your personal Savior and now confess him to be your personal Lord. You trust that his work accomplished on the cross at Calvary was enough. You believe him when he said it's finished. He's paid the debt you owed. It was paid in full by the only currency that God accepts, the blood of Christ. Imagine Jesus on the cross shielding sinners with his blood. And the moment you believed in him, God declared you righteous. You're righteous. That was his declaration in his own courtroom, in his own sight. He declared you righteous, justified, because Jesus paid the price for your sins. So what you believed including the, includes the very reason why we are gathered here this particular Sunday morning, the glorious resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ from the dead. Sadly, there are some who will actually agree with all those facts. They'll assent intellectually to those truths. Even that a man rose from the grave. <laughs> they'll agree with that in their heads, and you're talking to them, and they'll say, yeah, yeah, I believe that. But somehow, they don't believe in their heart that God has raised them from the dead. And they, they have it in their heads, but they don't have it in their hearts. And that's the difference between salvation and eternal life and judgment and eternal death. So for those, there's no real joy today. Hey, there might be a happy face or a happy countenance, but there's no real joy today. Hey, but it's not too late. It's not too late for you to come and actually experience that joy by turning from your sins and submitting to the Lord Jesus Christ today, even now. The fact that Jesus was resurrected clearly shows that he is true to his own word. He said he's going to rise up, and he did. He did. And this reveals that God the Father validated Christ's perfect life and his sacrificial death on the cross for sinners. John Piper says, The resurrection of Jesus is God's gift and proof that his death was completely successful in blotting out the sins of his people and removing the wrath of God, end quote. Truly, without the resurrection, there's no good news. There's no hope. Why is that? Because someone who is dead is not able to save or help anyone. But because Jesus has been raised, we can be confident that he really is who he claimed to be. That is God in the flesh, the Son of God, God the Son. And we can trust him completely. Everything that the Bible says... And so here's something that the Bible says that not everybody is aware of. Psalm 89 verse 4 says, Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. A God is just. It's part of his character. And this means that God is always just. Every single moment, all the time, he always has been, he always will be. It's the foundation of his throne. His justice is holy. That means it's set apart. And there's a lot of people talking about justice these days. God is the one who defines justice. He's the standard. He cannot be unjust. His justice means that all sin must be punished. Every sin that you and I have committed has to be dealt with because God is holy and righteous and just. 
And the good news is, it's either going to fall upon Jesus' head or it's going to fall upon yours. And the good news is that, once again, if we repent, humbled, contrite in spirit, coming before God, admitting we got nothing for Him, there's nothing good in us that causes us to be saved, please save me, Lord. Please save me, Jesus. His promise is whoever calls on the name of the Lord like that will be saved. So it says that righteousness and justice is the foundation of his throne. Well, Jesus being the Son of God, God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, he too is just in all his ways. He's the perfect judge. People don't like that word judge, but Jesus is the judge. He's ascended into heaven and he's coming back. Just like he promised that he'd rise from the grave, he said he's going to be back. He shed his own blood and he died the first time he came. But the next time he comes, he's going to bring justice. And there will be blood spilt of sinners who have rejected God and the gospel. So in the meantime, until then, we don't know when that's going to be, but until then, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? And more pointedly, I ask for our Faith Bible Church family and those who are here uh, visiting or here for the first time or so, who is Jesus in relation to you today? Who is Jesus in relation to you today? I've entitled this morning's sermon, Jesus, What a Friend for Sinners. Jesus, What a Friend for Sinners. And I want to explore and highlight this glorious Resurrection Day morning what it means for Jesus to be a friend for sinners. And I want this to be an encouragement to those of us who are, who are believers. And I also want this to be an exhortation to those who do not know Jesus yet. And we're going to start by simply making the point. The first point is simply this, that Jesus is a friend of sinners. Okay, there's not too many texts in the Bible that talk about Jesus or God uh, being our friend or us being friends of God or Jesus. Hey, just a, a couple in the Old Testament talking about Abraham and Moses. They are specifically called friends of God. In Matthew 11, verse 19 in the New Testament, Jesus is speaking here. And he says, The Son of Man came eating and drinking. And they say, they being Pharisees and scribes, religious leaders who hate him, They say, Behold, a gluttonous man and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Matthew 11, 19. So in this verse, Jesus is called by his enemies a gluttonous man and a drunkard. They wrongly accused him of gluttony and drunkenness. Why? Because they saw him spending time eating and drinking with sinners with immoral, sinful people. And they add as an indictment of him that he's a friend of tax collectors and sinners. So it's interesting when you read the gospel sometimes that Jesus' enemies, the people who hate him, sometimes perceive him more accurately than his disciples do. And even when they mean to insult him, like now. It's like those times before he casts out demons that The demons, they recognize him right away and address him, as one of them did, the Holy One of God. 
And another one said, the Son of God. Actually, Satan acknowledged Jesus as the Son of God as he tempts Jesus in the wilderness. But these Pharisees and scribes are obviously wrong about Jesus being a glutton or a drunkard because we know Jesus never sinned in any way, shape, or form. But what they got right was that he was a friend of tax collectors and sinners. In other words, he was considered a friend to the lowest, most despicable people in Jewish society, immoral, irreligious, non-practicing Jews, traitorous tax collectors, working for Rome, unclean, defiled, all the immoral associates of these lowlifes, these thugs, these gangster types, prostitutes, etc. So sneering like, they call Jesus a friend of tax collectors and sinners. And they mean it like a, a disparaging nickname, as an insult to his character. Okay, but to the one who, who knows that he or she is a sinner, is this not one of the most hope-imparting, soul-stirring, heart-inspiring titles of our beloved Savior? Is it not, fellow sinners? Think of it. The Holy Son of God, the Almighty Judge of the universe, is a friend of the vilest sinner. Even me, even you. Okay, whatever sins you've committed, whatever wrongs you've done, however you've dishonored your family, whatever mess you've gotten into, Jesus is a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Consider for a moment, folks, what a friend is. Okay, at the least, it's someone who enjoys your company. Jesus ate and drank with these people. Eating and drinking, that's spending time, sharing a meal. Somehow Jesus made these dregs feel welcome around him, even comfortable. But let's be clear, it did not mean that he joined them in their sin or that their sins didn't matter. But it meant that there was something different about him, something different, different than those, those Pharisees, those scribes and other harsh religious people. You know the parable of the lost sheep, right? Luke chapter 15. Jesus says that if you have 100 sheep, one is lost, you go and leave the 99 safe, go after the lost one, and what joy there is when you find it. He says there's more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who have no need of repentance. In other words, self-righteous people. He tells this to the Pharisees and scribes who are raging at him, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. Hey, do you know who were, who were listening to his teaching, who were coming to him? Hey, the very tax collectors and sinners, these immoral people who Jesus befriends. In fact, Luke writes in that chapter, 15 verse 1, Now all the tax collectors and the sinners were coming near him, coming near him to listen to him. These sinners knew that he cared for them. Hey, they were coming near. They were drawing near to him. Somehow he made them feel at ease around him. These wretches, these wicked and they know it people, they were outcasts, kept at a distance from others, but Jesus, he befriends. He met with them, spent time with them. He wasn't just a talker. He was an actual friend of sinners. Okay? Sinners like even you and me. While we were sinners, okay? not after we became good people or we turned over a new leaf or we decided to change our life, okay? while we were sinners, Jesus befriended us. 
I so appreciate the Open Arms Pregnancy Clinic. They care for women, many, many of them young teenage girls, with unintended pregnancies. They mostly unbelievers. They mostly due to fornication, a result of sexual relations outside of marriage. Instead of judging and casting out, Open Arms Pregnancy Clinic, they invite and inform these, these ladies about the life of the child that they're carrying inside of them. And they reach out, they educate with practical information and give them choices. Hey, by the way, abortionists never do this. Hey, ultrasounds aren't even given until after they're, they've paid for their abortion. Open Arms is different. Not only that, but they, they, treat, they treat each woman, and they even counsel men as well, but they treat them, like they like to put it, holistically. And they treat them, they care about their physical, their emotional, their mental, and most important, they care about and treat their spiritual. They care and love enough to share the good news of Jesus Christ with them. And lots of times when abortion-minded women, they see their, their ultrasound, they, they, they change their mind. They decide to keep their baby. But tragically, there's others who don't change their minds, and they go through with the abortion, and it's heartbreaking. But Open Arms Pregnancy Clinic, the people there, they still seek to care for those ladies as well, to pray for them, to help them, be a help to them. And even if they don't choose life, they continue to love them with the gospel. Now, to be sure, once again, this doesn't mean that that we are to help people feel comfortable with their sin, in their sin, with their sinful choices. Jesus didn't come to tell sinners, ah, it's okay, don't worry about it. Don't worry about your sinful lifestyle, all the sin you've done. God loves you all, he'll forgive you. Jesus is full of grace, John 1.14, and truth, grace and truth. He brings good news and he graciously, faithfully tells it like it is. He knows the truth about all of us and his command is to repent. Repent is the first word of the gospel. Turn from your wicked ways. Admit you're a sinner. Turn to Christ. Trust in him alone for forgiveness and eternal life. That's his command. And his demand is that you forsake everything and follow him. I love this clarity from Martin Lloyd-Jones when he's talking about repentance. Quote, Repentance means that you realize that you are a guilty, vile sinner in the presence of God, that you deserve the wrath and punishment of God, that you are hell-bound. It means that you begin to realize that this thing called sin is in you and that you long to get rid of it, that you turn your back on it in every shape and form. You renounce the world, whatever the cost, the world in its mind and outlook, as well as its practice. And you deny yourself and take up the cross and go after Christ, end quote. So Jesus, being a friend of sinners, doesn't mean he's our, our homeboy. The t-shirt came out a long time ago, Jesus is my homeboy, worn by so-called Christians. Um, he's, not, he's not a man who just rolls with it. Oh, your anger, your temper, that's okay, it doesn't matter. Your lust, your porn habit, that's all right, too. Your pride, I can deal with that. Lying, well, everyone lies once in a while, right? I mean, sometimes you just have to. Okay? <laughs> no, in fact, Jesus 
hates all of those sins way, way, way more than you think he does. He hates your sin far more than you think he does. Yet, my point is that Jesus comes to us knowing all that, knows all our sins, knowing all our burdens, knowing all our faults, and he invites us to himself. He knows all the dirt, the depravity, the darkness, the disobedience, perversion, which is so offensive to him. He knows all the damage and destruction we've caused to others with our, with our selfish words and actions and deeds and attitudes. And yet somehow, he befriends us anyway. That's what I mean when I say Jesus is a friend of sinners. This was meant to demean him, to defame him, but it's actually, thinking about that, it's, it's a title of unspeakable comfort to those of us who know we're sinners. His heart inclination is to approach sinful people and befriend them. Okay, so in that very general, broad sense, Jesus is a friend of sinners. The second point for today Jesus specifically calls Christian believers his friends. Jesus specifically calls Christian believers his friends. If you want to turn to John chapter 15 with me. What a precious passage this is to us, brothers and sisters in Christ. John 15. I wish I could tackle more verses here, but we're going to just do verses 13 to 15 and not even get the whole of it. But chapter 15, verses 13 through 15, says, Greater love has no one than this, Jesus speaking, that one lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you slaves, for the slave does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. For all things that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. So I I just want to highlight a few implications from this short passage. Again, what's it mean for Jesus to call believers his friends? four, Four implications here. The first thing is this. Jesus is a friend like no other. Jesus is a friend like no other. John chapter 15 here, he's talking to the 12. Hey, the night before he's crucified, what wisdom and tenderness of our Lord as he teaches them and speaks to them. And he says, I don't call you my slaves any longer, hey, but I've called you friends. How amazing and wonderful is that for his disciples to hear, but probably also a little confounding because they are more aware than ever at this point. This is right before Jesus goes to the cross that Jesus is Lord God, he's the King of creation, he's God the Son, he's the Son of God, he's their Lord and Master, but here he says, I now call you my friends. Clearly, this friendship that Jesus is talking about belongs to Christians alone. Jesus is talking to his disciples. These guys all believe in him, except for Judas, of course. But also very clearly and importantly, He says, you are my friends if you do what I command. Have you ever tried that on someone? Hey, you you can be my friend, but just got to do everything I say. How 
how not to win friends and not influence people, right? In this case, though, Jesus is still the disciples' Lord, their master. They are still his servants, his slaves even. Okay, but when he says that, he's saying they are no longer only his slaves. Okay, no longer do I call you slaves only, for the slave does not know what his master is doing. Right? And so, this is Jesus calling them his friends. Jonathan Edwards, he writes, God in Christ allows such little poor creatures as you are to come to him, to love communion with him, and to maintain a communication of love with him. You may go to God and tell him how you love him and open your heart and he will accept of it. He has come down from heaven, has taken upon him the human nature in purpose, that he might be near to you and might be, as it were, your companion. So that, that word companion sort of struck me there that Jonathan Edwards used. It's another word for friend. Okay, but companion points us a little more specifically to someone who, who comes along with you on a journey. Okay, we as Christians are on a pilgrimage of sorts, aren't we? A sojourn in this earth on the bumpy road to heaven. Okay, how important it is to have friends on a human level for this life with all its challenges, its trials, its distresses. In the epic tale, Lord of the Rings, what a vital part of the story it was for Frodo, the ring bearer, to have his faithful friend Sam or Samwise on that perilous journey to Mordor. Sam was a loyal, devoted friend, sticking to Frodo closer than a brother. When Frodo says, go back, Sam, I'm going to Mordor alone, Sam says, of course you are, and I'm coming with you. And a little later, as they struggle along the journey, their friendship, such a a sweet, winsome, compelling, important aspect of this story, they're struggling along, it's getting really, really hard. Sam says, come on, Mr. Frodo, I can't carry the ring for you, but I can carry you and it as well. So you get up. Come on, Mr. Frodo, dear. Sam will give you a ride. Just tell him where to go, and he'll go. Most people don't find a a friend in life like Frodo did in Sam. In our modern age of Facebook friends and so-called social media and superficial relationships, there's this further challenge of having true friendships, people you can trust to share life with, trust sharing your deepest feelings and, and thoughts and heart with. Some of us are blessed with spouses who are our best friends. Yet, there are things we feel that we need to hold back, not share, even with them, right, for whatever reasons. Even our closest friend on the entire earth. Yeah, I think that's true. But in Jesus, we believers have a friend like no other. So as I was meditating on this and just um, thinking about this this week, it, it makes what Jesus said to us that much more treasured. To call me his friend, his companion, if you will. It means that he's with me throughout this pilgrimage of life through all the peaks and valleys, trials, triumphs, through all my failures and my efforts of faithfulness, he stays with me. He's the one who will not, will not allow my foot to slip along the way, Psalm 121. Whatever my situation is with my friends on earth, whatever's going on in my heart, 
What immeasurable comfort it is to know that Jesus calls me his friend. I can share absolutely everything, everything with him. I can lay everything out in my soul, in my heart. My trials, my struggles, my secret sins, my failings, my shortcomings. Wide open book before the Lord and he can handle it. As his disciple, his follower, his believer, his, his friend, he does not condemn me or belittle me or, or get impatient with me or get tired of me. Hey, I would get tired of me, but he doesn't. God says, uh, I, I will not allow your foot to slip. Jesus says, I will never, ever leave you nor forsake you. Jesus is a friend like no other. Second implication I want to take from this text is Jesus' friends are characterized by obedience. Jesus' friends are characterized by obedience. He says, if you do what I say, I call you my friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. It's going to be brief, but let's make sure we understand this correctly. In a very broad, general sense, Jesus is a friend of tax collectors and sinners. That is, his inclination and heart is to befriend even the vilest wretches among us. Even while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. But the ones he calls his friends here in John 15 are his disciples. They're true believers. They have trusted in him as their personal Savior for the forgiveness of their sin. They have forsaken all to follow him as their Lord And so, verse 14, you are my friends if you do what I command you. What a unique aspect of friendship this is. And it needs to line up with our walk in obedience to him. It's unlike any other relationship, any other friendship. Doing what he says in his word is what characterizes the disciples' friendship with the Lord. So with that, I can ask. I can ask those who, who claim Christ... If you say you're his disciple, you're a Christian, would Jesus call you his friend? Do you do what he says? He asks elsewhere, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? If you don't do what he says as a characteristic pattern of your life, you might think that you are his friend, but he might not agree. And his opinion is what counts most in the end. So, like true disciples of Christ, true believers in him, true friends of Jesus live in a pattern of obedience to him. We obey his word. We're not perfect by any stretch of the imagination, but our desire and direction is to walk in faithful obedience to him. Third implication I want to take from this text Jesus reveals heavenly truths to his friends. Amazingly, to his disciples in that upper room, the night before he's crucified, he tells them, I have called you friends for all things that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. In other words, not only do we get to share everything with with our Savior, with our Lord, everything that's, that's in us and anything, but he also shares all things with us. See, those who are only slaves don't receive information. 
They just do their duty. They just do their job. They just do what they're told to do. They're not privy to the, to the mind of the master or his purposes or his reasons or his heart. But to those who he calls friends of his, he discloses the truth. He makes known what the Father has revealed to him. He sends us even the Holy Spirit of truth. He has given us the gift of his word, divine truth. This is the book that we hold in our hands. There is a level of intimacy in this sharing that only friends receive not mere slaves. The Lord has given to us, dear friends, His all-sufficient, life-giving, life-transforming, life-renewing, life-sustaining Word. He's made it known to us, all in the pages of Scripture. And we, as those who have the Spirit of God in us, we're able to understand it. The Spirit enlightens our minds. He gives us spiritual knowledge and understanding, so we're able to, to, to receive it. Understand it. Comprehend it. It comes alive to us, to those of us who are alive in Christ. And so his word is sufficient. It's enough for all things pertaining to life and godliness. Second Peter chapter 1. Dear folks, we don't need more signs, further revelations, mystical visions, or extra biblical prophecies to guide us. The Bible is sufficient. It's enough. It's more than enough, and it's powerful, isn't it? Hebrews 4.12, the Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrows, and it's a, it's a judge, it's a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Okay, certainly, God does use and orchestrate experiences in our lives and events in our lives to point us to Him and to His Word, but we are not to live primarily based on those experiences. I mentioned last week what Peter said in 2 Peter 1 about the transfiguration, right? I'm not going to go over it again, but the most incredible spiritual experience that anyone could ever have, and yet Peter says we have the more sure prophetic word. We have the word that has been inspired by God. And so to us as friends, Jesus has given us knowledge of divine truth, the Holy Spirit, gives us enlightenment of his word. He makes it come alive. This is the closeness that we have with our Lord, that he reveals things and truths from heaven to us, his friends. The Puritan Richard Sibbs on this passage in John 15, he says, quote, In friendship there is mutual consent, a union of judgment and affections. There's a mutual sympathy in the good and ill of one of another. There's liberty, which is the life of friendship. Listen, there's a free intercourse between friends, a free opening of secrets. So here Christ opens his secrets to us and we to him. In friendship, there is mutual solace and comfort one in another. Christ delights himself in his love to the church and his church delights herself in her love to Christ, end quote. Once again, I feel like I have to qualify some of these things. Okay, we should know that God does not reveal absolutely everything to us, right? He doesn't always even give us his reasons for things. Okay, Deuteronomy 29, 29 comes to mind, for the secret things belong to God. So we're not saying that he reveals everything, but the point is that there is a mutuality of relationship that believers have with our Lord okay, as friends. He is with us. He sympathizes with us, 
and he shares divine heavenly truths with us. This is a bond of relational unity that mere servants, mere slaves don't have. His friendship with us is is close and it is real. So we should be encouraged as believers by this. The fourth and last implication of John 15, these few verses here, and we're just highlighting a few things. This last thing is this. Jesus' love for his friends is full of affection. It's actually not coming from this particular text. Jesus' love for his friends is full of affection. I think we're all familiar with the old children's song, right? Jesus loves me, this I know, for the tells me so, right? Um, No one has written a, a, a song called Jesus likes me, this I know. Or the Bible tells me so. But I want to explain a little bit that there's two main words for love uh, in the New Testament. Okay? The verb agapao, or noun agape, and the verb phileo. Okay? So agape is the self-sacrificing, self-sacrificing caring uh, commitment um, that expresses itself in seeking the highest good of, of others. Of the one loved, okay, this is um, this is the the love of choice. It is not devoid of emotion, but it emphasizes that love is a choice, not just a feeling. Phileo love is generally summed up as the friendship kind of love. Okay? Philadelphia is called the city of brotherly love, and uh, if you've ever been there, not really, but Philip. Our son, lover of horses, that's the meaning of that word. But that term phileo, it means to be a friend to another, to be fond of, to have a a liking for an individual or an object, to have or to show affection. Phileo love as devotion based in the emotions, often distinguished from agapao love, which is devotion based on the will. Phileo is to like, to feel affection for. And some of us have heard that this is kind of a lesser kind of love in the Bible. But I want to ask, did you know that God loves you this way? Jesus loves you this way. John 11, verse 3, just a couple verses here. John 11, verse 3, we know John chapter 11, Lazarus rose from the dead. Jesus raised him from the dead. Um, They're speaking to him. Lazarus is dead, and um, verse 11, actually, he's not dead yet. Verse 3, chapter 11, verse 3, and they're saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. So that word there is phileo, and this shows Jesus' great affection for Lazarus, for his family. It was his close friendship to Lazarus that moved his sisters to go to Jesus, ask him for help. As we recall from the story, Jesus wept for him, right? John 11, verse 35, the shortest verse in the Bible. He wept for him, for his family, upon learning of his death. There's a lot that goes into that, but it illustrates a deep friendship love that is evident as he's weeping. Jesus loved Lazarus this way. Matthew 10, verse 37. Jesus said this, He who loves, who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves 
son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. So in that's that's phileo there. It's not agapao. Phileo used in context. This is the kind of love that we have for family members. Okay, the the friendship, the closeness, the affection that we have for them. Okay? There's something different about our love for our family members, right? We love our church family, don't we? And uh, there's something even special and deep and just different about that. But there's something about our family members and our love for them, and it's unique. It's deep, it's strong. Yet Jesus says, listen, he says our phileo, our affectionate love for him needs to be more than that kind of love that we have for our family members. And and if not, we're not not worthy of him. The last verse, well, second to last, John 16, verse 27. You might be in John 16 still, or 15. John 16, 27 and this is a part of a reason to be bold in prayer to our Heavenly Father. It's because, verse 27, the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed. Again, Jesus talking to his disciples the night before he's crucified. He says, the Father himself loves you. God the Father does not only agapao love you, he, he phileo loves you. He has affectionate, tender close love for you, friendly, warm-hearted, even intense phileo love for you. This is amazing. Lastly, Revelation 3.19, Jesus to that last church in Laodicea. He says, Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Jesus corrects us. He disciplines us. He rebukes us. He calls us to repentance out of phileo love for believers. And and he he showers us. He pours out forgiving affections to us. So the point is that, incredibly, Jesus not only laid down his life in agape love for us, but he also has this tender, affectionate, warm-hearted, friendly phileo love for us. In our good moments and our bad moments. Hey, I can be very affectionate with my family members and, you know, things are going well. And, but then disobedience or then somebody says something I don't like and it can quickly turn like that phileo just disappears, right? And that's, that's, not, that's not good. Um, but in Christ, we have a friend. And what a friend we have in Jesus. So in conclusion, as we try to wrap this up, what have we learned today, this beautiful Resurrection Sunday morning? And what does it mean that Jesus is a friend of sinners? Well, the first thing is that he is broadly, generally a friend, even to the worst of sinners. He has a heart that is inclined toward the lost. And so that in itself is a a lesson for me for me to be inclined and befriend even the worst of sinners. Okay, people who are down and out, people who look like they want no part of Christ, people who are just in horrible situations, people who are completely immoral. The second thing is that he specially calls sinners who believe in him his friends, sinners who are saved, disciples, 
true believers. He specially calls them his friends. And he's a friend like no other. Those friends are characterized by obedience to him, even though we're more than slaves. Jesus shares divine truth to us, and he has even tender affections towards his friends. So a question is, those relational things that we enjoy with our friends here on this earth, this love and comfort and mutuality, those things, we we also get to enjoy them with, with our Lord. He shares in our life experiences. He relates to us as people, as individual persons. Okay? In other words, it's, this is not just an abstract idea. It's not just a theological truth. Okay? The resurrected Jesus is an actual living person. He's an actual living friend. So again, would Jesus call you his friend? For those of us who know that we are, or know what we are and what we were and what we've been rescued from, him calling us his friends and him being a friend of sinners, this is, I can't think of anything more comforting, more consoling, more assuring to our hearts and souls beyond words. Because he's risen, he's alive, he's coming back. In the meantime, I want to call out to those who are still unbelieving, our dear unbelieving friends who are with us this morning, He is still a friend for sinners, okay? And he invites you to be his friend while you still have breath. So turn turn from your sin. Forsake everything that you've trusted and believed in before and throw yourself upon the Savior. He is good. He will receive you if you place all of your trust and faith in him alone. The wonderful thing for us brothers and sisters in Christ, is that we can tell the world all about this man that we know, this best of friends that we have. Okay, many people say that they, they know there is a God, but we as believers can say that we know God okay, because we know Jesus, our friend. I'm going to close with this. S.M. Lockridge saying about Jesus, trying to explain and describe who he is. This is the final thing. Quote, His love never changes. His word is enough. His grace is sufficient. His reign is righteous. His yoke is easy and his burden is light. The heaven of heavens cannot contain him, let alone a man explain him. You can't get him out of your mind. You can't get him off of your hands. You can't outlive him and you can't live without him. The Pharisees couldn't stand him, but they found out they couldn't stop him. Pilate couldn't find any fault in him. The witnesses couldn't get their testimonies to agree. And Herod couldn't kill him. Death couldn't handle him. And the grave couldn't hold him. That's my king. He had no predecessor and he'll have no successor. There was nobody before him. There'll be nobody after him. You can't impeach him and he's not going to resign. That's my king. Praise the Lord. That's my king. And thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory. The glory is all his, forever and ever and ever. And when you get through with all of the forevers, then, amen, amen. Let's pray. Dear Lord Jesus, our King, and amazingly, a friend of sinners. For those of us who know you, our close friend, our best friend,
It is breathtaking to consider this truth. And we've only skimmed the surface of it. But thank you. Thank you, God, for your word. Thank you for bringing these things to not just our minds, but to our hearts. Thank you that our souls can be stirred up this morning to appreciate and see who Jesus is once again and who we are in relation to him. And I do pray, Father, that anyone who doesn't know you, who's here, who's listening this morning, that they would come, they would receive that invitation, they would submit, they would surrender to Jesus as personal Lord and believe that he has paid for all their sins on the cross and take him on as their personal Savior. And in doing so, God, believing in their hearts that he's alive, he's alive, and he is worthy of their life. I pray, God, that we would be able to rejoice all together today and exalt the one and only Savior, the King, our Lord Jesus, who calls us his friends. We thank you for that, Lord, and we praise you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.